Hello and welcome to Holmes, Borden, and the Watson Papers. This is your host, Chris Dilworth. Thanks for joining me. Lizzie got arrested on Thursday, August 11th, at the end of the inquest. Knowlton had obviously been talking about this with Hilliard. Even though Knowlton didn't know that Hilliard got the arrest warrant on Monday, clearly they had discussed whether they had enough evidence to arrest her. And after listening to her testimony and looking at all the other evidence in their possession, they did formally charge her with the murders. She was arrested and placed in custody, and she remained in custody until the trial was over sometime around June 20, 1893. So she's in custody for 10 and a half months. She moved from one county jail to another at various times. It depended on where the latest hearing was. The case was finally tried in New Bedford, not in Fall River. She had pretty comfortable accommodations. There were not a lot of women prisoners, I don't believe. She was allowed to order her meals from the local hotel, which I assume had fairly good food. She was given access to a lot of different visitors, not just her attorneys, not just her ministers, not just her sister, but friends were allowed to come and visit her on a regular basis. Her sister was a frequent visitor, and we'll talk about an incident that I referred to in the last episode. One thing that I wanted to mention that I had not spoken about up to this point is that one of the tips that the police got fairly early on after the murders was from a woman in Fall River, and I believe she actually signed her name to the letter. And it said, essentially, Dr. Bowen has, on occasion in the past, over the last few years, taken Lizzie to church and back on weeknights. He has escorted her when she was staying at her home on 2nd Street alone. Her parents were away for a while. Emma was away. Maybe Bridget was even away. The author of this letter was saying it's improper for a married man like Dr. Bowen to be out and about at night with a single woman and that there's something wrong here. It doesn't just look bad. I, the author, suspect that there's some kind of sexual relationship. That was what she was saying. So I assume the police would have followed up on that. And that may have been one of the things they wanted to discuss with Dr. Bowen when they brought him down for a special interview. I referenced this in one of the earlier episodes. I said that I thought they talked to him about the substance of those notes that he threw into the stove, those notes that Harrington saw him holding around 1 p.m. on the day of the murders. And Dr. Bowen said, oh, this has something to do with my daughter's travel plans. And he threw them in the stove. And Harrington saw the name Emma on one of the pieces of paper. I think that was almost certainly one of the things that the police wanted to discuss, but they may also have said, hey, Dr. Bowen, what's the story with you and Lizzie? Why are you escorting her at night back and forth to church when her parents aren't home? And what did you do? Did you go into the house with her and go at it? What's the story here? Don't you think that's a little bit suspicious or improper or whatever? Apparently, they didn't believe or they didn't have evidence to support a suspicion. There was no hard evidence that there was a relationship there. And even if there was, they may not have been able to use it. We do know that on the day of the murders, Dr. Bowen took it upon himself at one point to be up in Lizzie's bedroom. I think there was at least one other person, probably Alice Russell. There may have been a couple of people in the bedroom as well, besides Dr. Bowen. But Dr. Bowen was sort of the doorkeeper. I know the police and the prosecutor were suspicious. They, at the very least, thought that Bowen was going to do everything he could to slant things in Lizzie's favor, if not actually lie, if not actually cover things up. So I tell you all of this in the context of 
a potential answer or solution to this failure to produce the murder weapon and the protective clothing. And that is that it's possible that Lizzie had somebody take the hatchet and the bloody clothing away and dispose of it soon after the murders took place. And one person, in theory, could have been Dr. Bowen. If it was, he certainly play-acted very effectively. He appeared to be pretty distressed, stunned. It's not believable that he would have come over to the house and uh, having had no foreknowledge of this event and have Lizzie say, oh, please, I'm begging you, take the hatchet and the bloody clothes and get rid of them and cover up for me. I just don't believe he would have. I think he would have had to be in on it earlier and he would have had to have a pretty strong motive to do it. And I'm not aware of a motive. I don't have any reason to believe this is true. But I'm just saying that this is a theory, a line of thinking that I don't believe the police pursued. So when I talked in the earlier episode about the whole idea of accomplices, I'm not just talking about somebody actually committing the murder while Lizzie acts as lookout. I'm also talking about the possibility that somebody was behind the barn or in the backyard and waited for Lizzie to come out, maybe through the bulkhead, through the cellar bulkhead, come up through the cellar bulkhead and hand a bundle to the person that contained the hatchet and the bloody clothes, go back into the cellar, bolt the bulkhead door, and then wash up and then raise the alarm. So that's a possibility. I don't have anybody in mind. I'm not suggesting to anybody. Holmes, of course, has his own ideas, which we'll get to. But it doesn't look like the police pursued this. So they arrest her in August. They have 10 months to continue to investigate the case. And I don't think they thought about these things. I don't think they turned this over in their heads. And I just get the sense that they weren't particularly curious. Didn't they find this fascinating? Didn't they want to know the answer? Didn't they want to figure this out? And I don't get the sense they did. I don't think they particularly cared whether they found the murder weapon or the bloody clothes. If they found them, obviously great, but I don't think they put an awful lot of energy into figuring out where all this stuff was after they arrested her. Forgive me for generalizing here, but I think that's a characteristic of police in general. They're not really creative thinkers. That's not usually their strength. Their strength is they're often organized. They're dogged. They don't sit there and think of the nuances and say, what about this possibility? What about that possibility? This didn't seem to nag at Hilliard and the rest of the officers on the Fall River Police Force. It didn't seem to eat at them the way I think it would have eaten at me. Every day between her arrest and the start of the trial, I would have been thinking at various points during the day, how did this happen? Where is the hatchet? What happened to the clothes? How could it have been done? And that leads me to another point, and that is the whole idea of trying to reenact the murder. Why not ask Emma Borden, can we come up and run some experiments in your house? Ask Jennings, can we go to the house and do this? If Jennings says no, maybe you can get a warrant. What can you hear if you're down on the first floor in the back of the house? What can you hear when somebody on the second floor who weighs 200 pounds or more falls to the floor? Is there going to be a noticeable thud? In addition, wouldn't you want to try to run some kind of experiment that would replicate the attack? The idea that somebody standing astride a 200-pound woman and striking her 18 times in the head, almost all of which were almost certainly delivered when she was lying face down on the floor. 
So number one, don't you want to, again, ask Jennings and Emma, don't you want to go to them and say, can we run this experiment? If they say no, okay. If you can't get a warrant, okay. Maybe you can find a similar house with a somewhat similar layout and find out. When you pound a pig's carcass or a 200-pound bag of grain or whatever you use to replicate Mrs. Borden's body and the density of her body and the density of her skull, and you do it 20 times fairly rhythmically, does it shake the floor? Does it shake the walls? Is it noticeable or is it not? I realize you cannot perfectly replicate the morning of Thursday, August 4th. Among other things, you can't perfectly replicate whatever traffic went by. But at least you can get a sense of what the acoustics are in the house. And you can station officers all through the house. You can have someone in Lizzie's bedroom. You can have somebody down in the front hall, in the dining room, in the sitting room, in the kitchen, and see what they hear. Again, that part of it is not identical to the situation on the morning of August 4th. But at least give it a try. Partly out of curiosity, partly to help yourself figure out what did or didn't happen or what could or couldn't happen. If you have somebody in the kitchen and that person says, I can hear the thudding, there's a thudding sound, it's clear. You'd have two or three officers stationed in every place and you'd invite Jennings to come in if he was willing to be there or any other defense attorney or anybody Lizzie wanted to do this experiment so that they would have the opportunity to contest this and say, I didn't hear anything. But I don't even see the effort. That's the point. I don't see the effort. And if you don't have the effort and the curiosity and the desire to solve this crime, what are you doing as a police officer? Why are you doing this? What's the point? Why are you an officer? This would be the most interesting part of the job. This would be the fun part of the job. The fun part of the job would be solving crime, I would think. And here's the other problem. The problem is Knowlton. I don't know how hard Knowlton was pushing them. I really don't. But Knowlton should have made it very clear to them from the start. He should have sat Hilliard down and maybe Mayor Coughlin as well to get Coughlin to put some pressure on Hilliard, whatever it took, and say to Hilliard, you understand, Marshall, I've got to create a narrative here. You want me to get a conviction, right? You don't want to lose this case, I mean, that's going to reflect not just on me, but it's going to reflect on you and the job you've done. So let's all work together on this. I can't just have big gaps in the narrative and expect a jury to convict. And yet that's what happened. And what I mean by that is that when Knowlton delivered his closing argument, because they had not figured out what happened with the protective garments, what did Lizzie wear or what did the killer wear? Did Lizzie wear an overcoat? Was it someone else who committed the crimes? Because they never found the murder weapon or they couldn't definitively find it and identify it, Knowlton basically said, we can't say exactly how Lizzie did this. We don't know where the murder weapon is. It might be the handleless hatchet that does fit, but it might not be. And maybe Lizzie covered herself with newspaper. Maybe Lizzie wore her father's dress coat. Maybe Lizzie wore something else. We don't know. And then he said, we don't need to prove it. Technically, that's true. Technically, he doesn't have to produce the murder weapon. Technically, he doesn't have to tell the jury how she covered herself up or how the killer covered himself up. But come on, you're asking a jury to find beyond a reasonable doubt that Lizzie committed these murders because you don't have an accomplice. You don't have anybody you can point to who said they were part of it. You have no evidence, no specific evidence that anybody else was involved. So you're basically saying Lizzie did it. 
You don't even have a theory. You're like, well, it might be this. It might be that. It might have been this hatchet. It might not. I mean, the idea that she was wearing newspaper. How hard did Knowlton think about that argument? What are you talking about? How can you make protective clothing out of newspaper? What, you staple it together? You glue it together? You, you make a poncho out of newspaper? What are you talking about? You're not going to get a jury to convict somebody if you can't give them a picture of how the crime happened. And he didn't. And that's why he needed to continually pressure and badger Hilliard into following up on all these leads. If Hilliard had followed up on them and they just never got the information, at least you tried. But there's no reason to believe that they ever went to Jennings or Emma and said, can we reenact the murder? Can we bring one of our wives in to the house and see whether she could do all the things that needed to be done within 15 minutes? Let's see if there's enough time to get up into the barn and walk around quickly and get back and wash up and look at herself in a mirror. I don't think they figured out some of the other details. You've got to think this through thoroughly. How did Mr. Borden go from sitting by the window to lying down on the sofa? This is the kind of thing a jury is likely to ask when they go back to deliberate. How did that happen? Did Lizzie talk him into it? Was it his habit to lie down? Just the way that Bridget would go upstairs and lie down for a while. Was it Mr. Borden's? Find out. Find out. Ask Bridget. Is this unusual? Do you happen to know? Ask Emma. How was the hatchet, if the handleless hatchet was the murder weapon, how was the handle broken? Was there a bench vice in the basement where the hatchet could have been clamped in the bench vice and somebody could have tugged really hard at the far end of the handle and snapped it off? If not, how was it broken? How would you break an ash or an oak handle up near the blade? Because you can't snap it down over your thigh. You've got a really sharp blade. On top of everything else, you've got a 130-pound woman. Is she going to be strong enough to break this hatchet handle? You've got to think all those things out. You've got to do this. Every detail, you've got to think it through. And there's no evidence they did. And that's so disappointing and so curious to me. I don't know whether they ever experimented with the, the whole idea that the clothes were burned in the stove. How hot would you need this cook stove to be? How hard would it be to burn an overcoat? How hard would it be to burn a hat and gloves? Would it have a distinctive smell? How quickly would it burn? How hot would you need the fire? Would there be buttons and stays and snap in the ashes? Did they try that? Did they experiment? What about your reputation and your professional pride? Doesn't that matter? Wouldn't you care what your colleagues thought? Let me talk about this incident. I mentioned an incident in the last episode where, in the Turkey Affair, where in, in the Globe article, one of the things they said was that McHenry could verify this fight between Lizzie and Emma, where Lizzie said, Emma, you've given me away. That was all based on a story that Mrs. Reagan, the jail matron, told to a reporter from either the Fall River Globe or the Boston Globe. The allegations are pretty simple and straightforward. According to Mrs. Reagan, she overheard a brief conversation in which Lizzie said to Emma angrily, you told Attorney Jennings things you shouldn't have told him. You've given me away. I can't believe you did that. These are not the exact words, but this is the gist of it. Emma replied, I haven't told him, Lizzie. I haven't betrayed you. I haven't told him anything more than he needs to know. And Lizzie then says to Emma, I'm not giving in. I'm not giving in one inch. And she turns her back and faces the wall and doesn't talk to Emma for the rest of the visit. That's the gist of it. That's what appeared in the newspaper. After this article appeared, a number of people approached Mrs. Reagan, including at least one reporter for a rival newspaper, and they asked her, did this really happen? Did Lizzie say this to Emma? Did Emma say this? 
or what the article claims she said back to Lizzie. And there are six or eight defense witnesses, including one of the reverends, uh, Mr. Holmes, the family friend, a reporter uh, for a rival newspaper, and I think a couple other people that were there. A number of people ended up coming in at trial and contradicting Mrs. Reagan's version. In other words, saying that when we asked Mrs. Reagan about the truthfulness of this incident, we said, I, we read the article. We see that the reporter claims he had a conversation with you and you told him all these things. Did they actually happen? They weren't asking Mrs. Reagan, did you say this to the reporter? They're saying to Mrs. Reagan, did this incident actually happen between Lizzie and Emma? And Mrs. Reagan tells half a dozen people, including a reporter for a rival paper and Reverend Buck, no, it didn't happen. It's not true. There's not a word of truth in it. So at trial, you got Mrs. Reagan. She testifies that this conversation happened. Then there's a cross-examination by the defense attorneys. Didn't you tell all these other people that it wasn't true? Mrs. Reagan goes, no, I didn't. I never told any of them it wasn't true. And then the defense, when it's their turn to present evidence, they bring all these witnesses in. And one by one, they come in and they say, yeah, I had a conversation with Mrs. Reagan. And yeah, she said that it wasn't true. She said there was not a word of truth in it. And in fact, Somebody prepared an affidavit and asked Mrs. Reagan to sign it, saying that this wasn't true. And Mrs. Reagan said, well, I need the marshal's permission. I need Marshal Hilliard's permission. And so everybody kind of troops down to Marshal Hilliard's office. And he says to Mrs. Reagan, I'm ordering you not to sign it. Go back to your office. Go back to your duties in the jail. So they've got that testimony as well. And so this is how Knowlton handled it in his closing argument. He says, Mrs. Reagan overheard this conversation. It was true. The reporter somehow weaseled it out of her. You know how reporters are. You know how they can pressure you and trick you and wear you down. And so she let it slip. You know, in a moment of weakness, she told the reporter what she had seen and heard, not realizing that the reporter would actually publish it or not thinking about it. And then it ends up in the paper and she feels guilty. She feels guilty that she has eavesdropped on Lizzie and she thinks... To herself, am I going to be the reason that this poor young woman gets hanged, convicted and hanged, because I eavesdropped on her and told the reporter? So because she feels bad about it, she then tells all of Lizzie's friends and this other reporter from another newspaper, oh, it was all not true, when in fact it really was true. And then she gets on the stand under oath and says, this really was true. Think about what a stupid tactical move this is on Knowlton's part. Basically, I mean, think about it. What Knowlton is saying is, Mrs. Reagan lied. Mrs. Reagan's a liar. Yes, he's saying she did hear it, and now under oath she's telling the truth, but he's admitting he's saying, well, she lied at one point out of convenience because she felt guilty or because she didn't want Lizzie to get in trouble. Whatever, it doesn't matter. You're calling your own witness a liar. It doesn't matter why she lied. If she lied, how can you trust her? She says it happened. She says it didn't happen. She says it happened. Why bother to call her as a witness? What is Knowlton thinking? He doesn't need her testimony. It's a distraction. She's a terrible witness. And she lied. By his own admission, she's told two different stories. You don't put a witness on the stand who you acknowledge is a liar if you don't have to. And yet he does. So in some ways, even though I feel sorry for Knowlton in a lot of ways because he was stuck with this terrible police investigation, in other ways I feel like he didn't do as great a job as, as he should have. And I don't think he handled the case all that well in some respects. The last thing I'm going to say is that most of the highlights of the trial I've already talked about in the course of other episodes, but there's one bombshell that I haven't told you about and I'll 
finish up the episode with it. The theory, Knowlton's theory in the case was that the murder weapon was probably the handleless hatchet. I don't know if he said probably. He said it certainly could have been the murder weapon. So he was saying there was a realistic possibility it was, and he didn't commit himself to saying, I think it was. But this is the closest he comes to producing a murder weapon. I've told you how important it is to identify and produce a murder weapon. During the trial, Mullaly comes in and he testifies. Mullaly, I've told you, Mullaly was really not a smart guy. He'd been a patrolman for 15 years. He couldn't get a promotion. Everybody else in the Fall River Police gets promoted. Mullaly doesn't. Mullaly comes in. On direct examination, he says, yes, I was next to Fleet. I showed him the box. Fleet took the box down. He pulled out the hatchet head. Yes, it was there. Yes, it had these different kinds of ashes on it. Yes, it was a fresh break in the the wood that was coming out of the eye, etc., When he's asked on cross-examination, he's being questioned on cross-examination, he talks about the rest of the hatchet handle. And the defense attorney, Robinson, goes, wait a second, wait a second, are you telling me that the main part of the hatchet handle was there? I'm not just talking about that little piece of wood that was coming out of the eye of the hatchet handle. You're saying, uh, the hatchet head, you're saying that the rest of the handle was there? Is that what you're saying? And Mullaly goes, oh yeah, yeah. Robinson goes, well, what happened to it? And Mullaly said, fleet put it back in the box. So Fleet's already testified. He's already testified, and he's testified there was no hatchet handle. There was no large, broken hatchet handle. He said, no, there was just this little piece of wood coming out of the eye. So the defense immediately calls him back before he can talk to Mullaly, and they put him on the stand, and he tells the same story he told originally. There was no hatchet handle. I have no idea what Mullaly's talking about. The biggest problem here for the prosecution is, what's most amazing to me, is that in preparing their witnesses, this didn't come up. Obviously, when Mullaly was being prepared, and it was Moody's job, and this is why Moody needed more than two weeks to prepare. Obviously, Moody needs to say to Mullaly when he's preparing him, now, Mullaly, I'm assuming that you didn't see the rest of the hatchet handle, right? I mean, all you saw was the head and this little piece of wood sticking out of the head. I just want to be certain. The same way he would have asked Medley, and the same way he would have asked Fleet, because all these guys saw the hatchet head in the box, all of them, at various times. He'd ask every one of them, you sure there was no handle? I just want to be clear, there was no remaining part of the hatchet handle, no 12 or 14 or 16 inch broken piece of wood that would have made up the rest of the handle, yes or no? Just give me a clear answer. He apparently never asked Mullaly. It never occurred to him. This is a really important piece of evidence. This is a critical piece of evidence. You're kind of saying that this is the murder weapon. It's like the Keystone Cops. It's like Inspector Clouseau. You can't get the two cops who looked at the hatchet head in the box, you can't get them to tell the same story as to whether there was a 12 or 14 or 16 inch piece of broken hatchet handle in the box. How does that happen? It fits with the rest of the case. It's how the whole case was handled from start to finish. But it's hard to believe. It's hard to believe that something that important wasn't noticed, covered, straightened out during preparation. In the end, in his closing argument, Nolan goes, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter whether there was a broken... Yeah, it matters. It matters. You, you want a jury to believe that the police know what they're talking about. You want the jury to believe that the police are being thorough. You want the jury to believe that the police are being careful. You're not going to get a conviction unless the jury trusts the police and thinks they're being thorough and methodical and consistent. It matters. It definitely matters. Okay. 
I will wrap up there. And I think in the next episode, I will talk about the closing arguments. And then that'll pretty much do it for Lizzie Borden. We will have the psychiatrist I got another conversation with her scheduled, and then we will set up the interview. So that's coming in the near future. And after I talk to her, maybe one episode, maybe two. I don't think it'll be more than two. And then we get into the Holmes material. Thanks for listening. I hope you join me next time. And until then, take care.